0: Romans chapter 7. We'll begin reading once again at verse 7. <clears throat> what shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known coveting if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead, and I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin became alive, and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for uh, this testimony that we've heard. And for Your grace, Lord, we thank You that um, You love the worst of sinners and You love the worst of Pharisees. We're thankful, Lord, that you save barbarians, and you save Jews, and um, we just we we praise you and we thank you that there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands. There's nobody who seeks after God, but you come to such and to you you give reality and grace and faith, we thank You and praise You. And we pray for Your help here today in this time as we look into Your Word. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, I'm surely tempted not to even uh, take our time on Romans today because we've already heard the message. But I trust that the Lord wants us to go ahead And consider at least a couple of the next verses. We've been looking at this second section of Romans 7 now for several weeks. And we've seen that Paul's purpose in this section is to dispel any wrong ideas that people may have gotten from what he said in the first section, from verses 1 to 6. Uh, In verse 4, he said that we died to the law in order that we might bring forth fruit to God. That would be easy to misunderstand. In verse um, 5, he says that sinful passions were actually aroused by the law. And that would be easy to misunderstand. It would be easy for someone to get the wrong idea and think that the law itself is the problem. And so Paul wants to show us in this section that we just read from verse 7 to verse 12, that uh, just the opposite is true. There's nothing wrong with the law, but there is something wrong with fallen man. And uh, that which is wrong with fallen man is something that the law can't cure. And that's also something that He wants to show us. Not only can the law not cure the thing that's wrong, but it actually inflames and increases the problem. And... Uh, makes it that much worse. So we looked last week at verses 8 and 9 and how some of this worked out in practice in Paul's own life. He begins by saying that there was a time when, relatively speaking, he was apart from the law or without the law. Now, we know that in an absolute sense, there never was a time when Paul was... Without the law, after all of all things, he was a Jew. Not only was he a Jew, but his parents followed those commandments of the law. They took him in. We know he was circumcised the eighth day, and such things. Not only that, but he grew up at the feet of Gamaliel, one of the great teachers of the law. So he uh, he had the law in an absolute sense. He had the law. And he was immersed in the law. You could say from childhood. But in Paul's own words, the commandment hadn't come to him. So he had it, but he didn't have it. And uh, that was the state that he was in. And when he was in that state, there were two things that he says were true of himself. First of all, sin was dead. Apart from the law, sin was dead in his life. Uh, Again, not in an absolute sense, but relatively speaking, in terms of his experience... Sin was lying dormant in his life. I used this illustration last week of a a junkyard dog. You know, here's this big Doberman Pinscher in a junkyard sleeping. And uh, the fact is, he's powerful, he's dangerous, and he's vicious. But he's asleep until you start prodding around and making noise. And that's what the law does. That's what the commandment does when it comes home to the heart. And all of a sudden, he comes alive. But he says in this state that he was in at that time, relatively speaking, sin was dead. And he was almost totally unaware of it at one point in his life. He thought he was good. So, sin was dead. And the second thing that he says was true of him during that time of his life is that he was alive. I was alive once, apart from the law. And so again, relatively speaking, we know all men are dead in sin, but relatively speaking, he felt like he was, he was doing fine. He was a good person and he was rich and increased with goods and had need of nothing, spiritually speaking. And he was just like that Pharisee in the Lord's parable that went into the temple to pray and there wasn't anything he could ask for. Uh, because he didn't need anything. I mean, all he could do is just come there to the temple and thank God that he was the way that he was. And uh, that was basically, that's what his whole prayer was. And so Paul says, I was alive apart from the law once, but then something happened, the commandment came. And when the commandment came, two things happened. First of all, he says, sin came alive. When the commandment came, Sin came alive. In other words, when Paul realized, really, truly realized, the depth and meaning and spirituality of the law, and he began to concentrate on keeping it, then he began to find out the power of sin in his life. Sin showed its, its true power in nature. And the second thing he says, not only did sin come alive, but he says, I died. When the commandment came, sin came alive. And I died. He came to realize the misery and agony and wretchedness of defeat by sin. And it seemed like the more he concentrated on keeping the law, the more he tried to be holy, the worse he became. Now, when a man gets in that state, he's a candidate for mercy. When he comes to that point, as long as we think we're good, we don't need a savior. They that are whole don't need a physician. Say, I never have really felt much need for God. That's why God's not real to you. That's why He's never saved you. That's why you don't even know who He is. It's not He. He only saves sinners, and not theoretical sinners. People that know, and they come to know that you are wretched and vile. And these hymns that we sing, like "Vile and full of sin, I am." People say, "Well, that's morbid. That's you know, that's." And they changed the words, and you know, actually even that hymn I mentioned last week, vile and full of sin I am. They changed that false and full of sin I am. You know, soften that down a little bit. We're not vile. Well, that's the problem. If you haven't seen that you are vile, you haven't seen that you're a sinner. And that's what Paul's talking about. He said, I came to see. This is not some theoretical thing. Once we realize that, then we can be saved. And uh, again, the parable of the Lord concerning the publican. He goes down to the temple. Here's the Pharisee and here's the publican, the tax collector. And he beats his breast. He doesn't even look up to heaven. And he says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. The sinner. And that man went down to his house justified. Because he was a sinner and he saw his need and he cried out to God. Well, that brings us into verses 10 through 12. And these are the verses that I want us to look at today. Verse 10, And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. And the question that confronts us right off is, what does Paul mean when he says this commandment was to result in life? And before we talk about that, I just want to point out something else, and that is, isn't it amazing how much God expects us to dig in and think and study the Bible? He could have made it a lot easier, you know. He could have made the Bible a lot simpler. Where you just, you know, you just read it, it's real, trivial, simple type things, but he doesn't do that. Um, And we need to realize that Paul is not writing this letter to professional theologians he's writing it to a bunch of common commonplace Christians and so what that means is to me as a commonplace Christian it means that first of all it means that god expects me to dig in and cry out to him in order to understand his word but another thing it means is is that even though these things appear hidden and difficult, they're going to be opened up to me if I will cry out to Him. Jesus said, "No man brings a, a a lamp in order to stick it under a bushel." And He's talking about the parables. He's saying, "Don't think I, if I wanted to hide these things, I I wouldn't even have to talk at all. I mean, why am I talking and why am I telling you anything? I didn't bring these parables to put them on the truth, the light, to hide it under a bushel. I brought it so that You might dig it. It's the glory of God to conceal a matter, but it's the glory of kings to search out a matter. And we have the privilege of coming to God and crying out for understanding. You remember there in in Proverbs 2, he says, My son, if you will receive my sayings and treasure my commandments within you, make your ear attentive to wisdom, Incline your heart to understanding. So here's a person that you know. Here's God's sayings. He says, receive them, treasure them. Make your ear attentive to wisdom. Incline your heart to understanding. So you say, Lord, I want to. I want to hear what. You, I want to hear what you have to say in your word. Well, then he says, then if you lift your voice for discernment and cry for understanding, if you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. Isn't that wonderful? The promised us. But he says, if you cry for discernment and lift your voice for understanding, seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures. So you say, well, I don't get much out of that book of Romans. Well, how much have you cried out to God to teach you? It's not some unusual thing that even as a Christian, you've got to cry out to the Lord. He didn't just throw these things out on the ground to be trampled underfoot. He puts them, He hides them there for us to cry out to Him so that He might teach us. That ought to be our attitude as we come to the book of Romans or any of these other other things in the Bible. You know... The Spirit, if you're a Christian, the Spirit has come and given you basic understanding and you just gotta dig in and ask Him to give you more. So, we ought to, we ought to be encouraged to, to cry out to God to teach us, even as Christians. Open our eyes to behold wonderful things out of His law. Well, what does Paul mean here then when he says, in verse 10, this commandment which was to result in life. Well, the first thing that we need to do is look at the literal here. And if you have a Bible like mine in the margin, it says this commandment which was to life. This commandment which was to life. In the authorized, it says this commandment which was the commandment which was ordained to life. And I think the ESV says the commandment which promised life. Anybody have the NIV? What does it say? We got any NIVs? I've I've spoken too much against the NIV. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody's even got it anymore. Life, them, What's that again? The commandment which was intended to bring life. So. So all of these are trying to get fill in the blank. See the commandment which was to life literally. And so, well, the commandment which was to result in life, the commandment which was intended to bring life, the commandment which promised life, all those are trying to capture the meaning. But the point is is that the law is tied in with life. Now, doesn't that sound like a contradiction of everything Paul has said thus far in Romans? I mean, he's been at pains to show that uh, nobody can be justified through the law and nobody can get life through the law. And now he says, look, the law is tied in with life. It was, it promised life. It was to result in life. So, in what way is the law tied in with life? Is the question. And anybody care to give the answer? How did the law, how was the law tied in with life? Anyone? All right. The law said. Do this and you'll live. So it promised life. The law promised life. It said, do this and you'll live. And um, we see that in a lot of scriptures. In Romans 10.5, he says, The man who practices the righteousness based on law shall live through that righteousness. So there's an example. In uh, Deuteronomy 6.25, If you God says, If you keep it, it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to observe all this commandment before the Lord our God just as He commanded us. I guess Moses is speaking there. He says, It will be righteousness for you if you keep it. And if you have righteousness, you'll live. Galatians 3.12 um, It says, He that does those things shall live by them. The law is not of faith, but he that practices those things shall live through them. Um, Luke 10, 25-28. Maybe maybe I'll turn to that and read it to you. Luke 10, 25-28. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and put him to the test saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What's written in the law? How does it read to you? He answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. He said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. So there it is. Keep it. Keep the law. Keep the essence of the law and you'll live. Leviticus 18.5, So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live, if he does them. I am the Lord. So Paul is talking here about what the law promises and would give if a man were to keep it. The law really did promise life to those who would keep it. The problem is it never happens. And that's what the last two sections of Romans 7 are about. But this is what we need to realize. The Jews in general thought that God gave the law so that men could be saved by it. And that's what Paul thought, and that's what the Pharisees thought. God said, do this and you'll live. And they said, well, I'm a good person. I'll go ahead and do that. And the incredible thing is, is that people think that they're actually doing it and that they're actually keeping the law and meriting something from God until... uh, the Holy Spirit shows them otherwise. That's how blind men are. I mean, those Pharisees—that—that's the state of the man apart from the law. He doesn't really understand anything, and he thinks he's doing fine. I was alive, Paul says. But when the commandment comes, then it's a different story. Paul says, when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. And the commandment, which was to result in life, resulted in death for me. In other words, I started out thinking I could keep the law and merit life, but once God opened my eyes, all the law did was condemn me and make my sin worse and drive me into despair. Sin came alive, I died. The commandment which was ordained or promised life proved to result in death for me. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, The law, far from giving Paul life and happiness and holiness and joy, did the opposite. It condemned him. It showed him his failure and his evil nature. It inflamed sin within him and therefore revealed to him his utter helplessness and left him in a state of complete misery. That's the effect that law has upon those who are in the flesh. It doesn't bring life. It brings death. Now, if that's what the law always does, then obviously God didn't give it in hopes that it was going to do the opposite. God knew what the law was going to do, and He gave it to do what it actually does. In other words, God didn't give the law in order for men to earn life and salvation by keeping it. He gave the law so that men would utterly fail under it. You say, that's not fair. God gave a law that men can't keep. You know what you're saying? The law of sin. The very thing that Paul anticipated, you see. And so what he does is he says, God forbid, there's nothing wrong with the law. There's something wrong with you. There's something wrong with man, fallen man. God gave the law to expose that desperate need in man. In other words, God gave the law to kill us. That's why He gave the law. Now, this, just listen to what Paul, how Paul describes what happened on Mount Sinai. When God gave the law, he says, God has made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. Capital S. "...for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life." But if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones came with glory, so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face fading as it was, how shall the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory?" For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. Indeed, what had glory in this case has no glory on account of the glory that surpasses it. For if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. You know, he calls the whole thing of what happened on Sinai the ministry of death. Doesn't that seem kind of cruel? You know, God says, here, here's His, here's His gift. It's a ministry of death. And Moses comes down from the mountain carrying these things. His face is glowing. They think, wow, this is something wonderful. This is life. Well, they were right that it was something wonderful. But it was something so holy and good and wonderful that it's going to kill everybody that gets near it. And that's why God gave it, you see. That's grace. One more passage on this, Galatians 3. He says, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the Scripture has shut up all men under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So he says, God never intended the law. I mean, he never, it never was given with the idea that, well, this is going to compete against salvation by sheer grace and by the promise that he had made to Abraham. He said, that's not why he gave the law. He gave the law. I mean, it can't give life, not because there's anything wrong with it, but because men fail utterly under it. And so he says, God never He gave all these promises to Abraham and then here comes the law. The Jew says, well, look, God gave the law so you could be saved by keeping it. That would nullify everything He did by these promises to Abraham. He said, no, that's not why He gave it. He gave that law to condemn men and kill them to advance the promises that He had made to Abraham so that He could bring them to pass in the seed that He had promised. And He said that seed was Christ. So... Totally the opposite of the way the Jews thought, and again, you know we talked about this back in chapter four the Jews, if you ask a Jew and there was an actually an interview I think it was in time or one of those magazines, and they were saying, Who's the greatest jew well the jew, the, the rabbi said, Moses see that misses it totally. The greatest Jew was Abraham, who was saved by faith? Moses came. And the law was given through him to advance what God had given to Abraham. And so Paul, amazing, Paul goes back to Abraham, argues all that he does in Romans 4 talking about Abraham, because he's the big one. Well, verse 11, back in Romans 7. Verse 11. For sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. Notice the parallel to verse 8. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment. Same thing, same phrase. And that taking opportunity, we said, was the, the idea of, of a beachhead, or a base of a base of operations in military terms, this word opportunity. So sin, taking this base of operations... Through the law, through the commandment. Well, what did it do? Well, that's a little different than what he said in verse 8. In verse 8, he's emphasizing the power of sin. He says, sin using as a beachhead the law produced in me coveting lusting of every kind. So there's the power of sin. It can actually take the law as a beachhead or a base of operations and it can produce all kinds of more sin. So it's powerful to do that. But here he's talking about something different. He's talking about the deceitfulness of sin. Sin can take a hold of the law and use it as a base of operations to deceive. And so sin here is deceitful. And before we go on uh, and talk about this more, I just want to stop here for a little while because the Bible has a lot to say about the deceitfulness of sin. In the first place, we have to be deceived in some way to sin at all. To sin in the first place, you have to be deceived. Let me just give you some verses. 2 Corinthians 11, 3. I am afraid lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your mind should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Genesis 3.13, the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me. And it's uh, Paul said in another place, it wasn't Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. There was deception even involved in the very first sin. But it goes on and on and on. Um, In 2 Thessalonians, let me read this one to you. Uh, chapter 2, verses 8 to 10, it says that lawless lawless one will be revealed whom him the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders and with all the deception of wickedness. The deception of wickedness for those who don't believe. They don't receive the love of the truth. So deception. Ephesians 4.22 In reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. Or literally, deceitful lust is the idea. Mark 4.19 The worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. And the desire for other things enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. There is nothing deceitful about riches in themselves they're good. In themselves. But sin, you see, uses even good things to deceive us. And it can use riches. Hebrews 3.13 But encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called a day, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So, sin is deceitful. That's what the Bible says, that sin will deceive you it will take you in and make an absolute fool out of you. And you might think that it's not deceiving you, and that means you're deceived already. Sin is deceitful. When God tells you something, when He, when he warns you about the deceitfulness of something, He's not just doing that because it's obvious something that you can you know, uh, not have any problem with. It's, uh, it is deceitful. How is sin deceitful? How does it deceive? Well, first of all, I just thought of two or three things here that I made note of. It hardens us. Lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. And um, we lose a scent, uh, the sense of how bad sin is. We begin to turn away from God and it doesn't even seem like a big deal. That's deceitful. You know, you meet people... That say, I know I'm going to hell. And they make a joke out of it. I know I'm going to hell. That's where all my friends are going to be. Ha ha. And you know what that means? They're utterly deceived. If a man has his eyes open for five minutes that he's going to hell, it's all he can do to stay alive. I mean, it's so crushing. The night that I became a Christian God opened my eyes a little bit to what the word lost meant. And it was it was so horrible I could not have lived. I mean you could not maintain your sanity and live under that. I mean if you can talk about going to hell and joke about it, you're blind, you're deceived. I, I, uh, I hope I never experienced this, but I've been told that when you're freezing to death, you start feeling warmer. You know, and you get sleepy. Just, let's just, I just want to lie down here in the snow. I mean, I feel good. I'm not freezing. I feel warm. That's what we're talking about with sin. It, secondly, it deceives us into thinking that death is life. In other words it deceives you into thinking that disobeying God is worth it. You know, I can get something good out of this if I'll disobey God. That's what happened with Eve, you know, she the devil says, well God's holding out on you. You're going to get something good if you'll disobey God. Now isn't this amazing? Every man, woman, and child in the world all down through history has experienced the misery and death that come from sinning. And yet they keep on doing it. I mean, in your own life, haven't you seen enough to be convinced? But there's this propensity. What is it? Sin's deceitful. Men are deceived. I mean, you just take the average college student. They you know he go he he comes home drunk on Saturday night and he's miserable the next day. Well, you'd think i'm not going to do that anymore that's not the way it works. you're deceived by it. Thirdly, it deceives us into thinking that we have a legitimate excuse for our sin. This is a big deception. Every man's way. The Bible says every man's way is right in his own eyes. That's literally true. Every man's way. I mentioned I think last week a visit uh, in a prison down here uh, several years ago. And you know, it is amazing. Everybody's been framed. Everybody's innocent. It's always somebody else. There's always an excuse. There was a guy that one of the girls found passed out in a field here, and you couldn't smell alcohol on his breath because he was drinking straight stuff, and it would evaporate. And he, they took him down to one of these rehabilitation places or whatever, stopover places, and I I went in to visit him. I mean, they got him in an ambulance and took him in there. And I tried to talk to him about the Lord and tried to talk to him about his needs. I mean, the guy is a derelict. And finally, I got to the point, I said, Is there, I said, Look, you're in this place and I'm a pastor. I said, Is there anything that I can do for you? And he's, I'm drawing a blank. That's what he said. I'm drawing a blank. Well, he was drawing a blank because he's totally deceived, completely deceived. Every man's way is right in his own eyes. As a pastor, you would not believe how many times Dick and I have heard this word, you don't understand. You know, my situation is unique. I have an excuse for what's going on in my life. You just don't understand. I need somebody that could understand. And it's this idea, sin deceives us into thinking that we have a legitimate excuse for our actions. It deceives us into thinking... That the law is unreasonable or too hard, right, right along the same line. I mean, how could God expect me not to lose my temper, considering the circumstances? That type of thinking. Or how could God expect me not to look on women to lust after them? I mean, nobody can keep from doing that. That's the kind of thing that sin deceives you in. Well, we could go on and on about the general deceitfulness of sin, but I think Paul is talking about a special kind of deceit here in verse 11. Because this deceit is what sin does to the man whose eyes have been opened to see how good the law is and how desirable the law is. He knows that the law is good and reasonable. But sin deceives him. How does sin deceive him in particular? And especially, how does sin use the commandment to deceive him? Now, I realize Paul's talking here about not just general deceitfulness of sin, but he's talking about what happened to him after the commandment came. And he started to try to be good. Now, how did sin deceive him here? Well, I think the answer is this. Sin uses the commandment to deceive this man by making him think that he's going to get life through the commandment when all he's going to get is death. That's what he's going to get. Now just to quote Charles Hodger, I thought he put it as well as anybody I've ever seen. He says, "...he expected life and found death. He expected happiness and found misery. He looked for holiness... And found increased corruption. He fancied that by the law all these desirable ends could be secured when its operation was discovered to produce the directly opposite effect. Sin therefore deceived by the commandment and by its slew him, Instead of its being to him the source of holiness and blessedness. I think that captures it completely. Well, what's the conclusion of all this then? Verse 12, So then, after all this that we've looked at, obviously there's nothing wrong with the law, you see. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Notice the two terms here. The law and the commandment. The law is the whole thing. And he talked about that back in verse 7. What shall we say then is the law of sin? He's talking about this whole thing. And then he says the commandment, which is individual commandment. And he talked about the commandment coming to him, which back here in verse uh, 8 and following, this commandment about not coveting. One particular commandment. So in other words, the law as a whole is holy, and every individual commandment of it that you look at, every little thing that you'd pick apart and look at each individual part of it, every little part of it is Perfect. Right down to the last jot and tittle, Jesus said. Not one stroke of one letter will pass from the law. Now we need to remember this. When we start talking about how the law kills you and everything, you've got to remember it kills you because it's so good. It doesn't kill you because there's something wrong with it. And you get down to where Jesus said, easier for heaven and earth to pass away than one stroke of one letter not to be accomplished. That's going to to happen. So right down to the least individual part of it, it's holy and righteous and good. It's holy because it came from God who is holy and it reflects His nature. Be ye holy for I am holy. It's righteous because it's absolutely fair and just. It doesn't demand one thing that's not right and fair and reasonable. God says there in Isaiah 1:3, an ox knows its owner, and a donkey its master's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. In other words, this is inexcusable. Even an animal doesn't go off track like this, and that's really true. It's only men that are that are this stupid. It's really, it's reason. The law is reasonable. It's fair. It's just. It's right. It's righteous. And it's good because everything about it is delightful and beautiful. Even the effect that it has of producing death is good because it leads us to Christ. So everything about it is good. The law of the Lord is perfect. Converting the soul, you know, that's good. Well, with this I close then. This is a real test of whether or not we're in touch with reality or whether we're being deceived in some way by sin. The first question is this, are there any of God's standards that seem too strict or unreasonable or unfair or unjust to me? You know, God is asking too much. Nobody could do that. And you get the attitude that you're excused Because there's something wrong with the law. Again, that's what Paul's fighting against here. You see, there's nothing wrong with the law. If you get to thinking that you can excuse your sin because the law is too strict, then you're deceived. Second question, are there any of God's standards that don't seem all that bad to break? I know God says such and such, but it doesn't seem all that bad to me then we're deceived. God's standards are holy in their life. Anything else is death, whether it looks like it or not. The forbidden fruit may look appealing. It may look attractive. It may look beautiful. But the fact is that it's poison and it's death. And if we get to feeling like get to thinking, you know, I know God says such and such, but I don't see anything that big of a deal about it. You've been deceived by sin because the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Well, the man to whom the commandment has come sees that the law is good and he sees that he can't keep it. And that leads eventually to a cry of desperation and salvation. Lord willing, that's what will be seen as we go along in Romans 7. That's amazing when you stop and think about it. See, all that Paul says about the law, the law is so holy, so righteous, so good because it's a description of God's character. If you boil it down in its essence, that's all it is. It's a description of God's character and it's a standard. But you realize, all it is is a description of God's character and what's required of you. There's no life there. You've got to get life from somewhere else. That's what we heard about this morning. The life has to come because we are dead in trespasses and sins and we've got hearts that need to be regenerated. We need to get a new heart. And you can't get yourself a new heart. God's got to give you a new heart. And so we cry out to Him in desperation, God be merciful to me. And uh, what you see in the New Testament is not a law-centered life. It's a Christ-centered life. And it's a life centered around love. And, you know, if we center our attention on keeping laws, we know immediately we're going to fail. Even as Christians. Because our life is Christ. Our life is not the law. And a lot of these things here that we're looking at about the law are true especially of this man to whom the commandment has come. But even for a Christian, if you start looking at law, you're not going to have life. And you start looking at duties and obligations, you've got to look at Christ and fellowship with Christ and rejoice in what He's done. The fruit of the Spirit is love right off the bat. As soon as you become a Christian, the first thing that happens is there's, there's some something real for the first time in your heart that really loves God. And really loves your fellow man. And that's a miracle. Lord willing, we'll go on next time and get into this section that everybody's been waiting for. <laughs> 13 and 14 and, and uh, following. Wow, thank you for your patience here. Later than I realized. Father, we thank You for this wonderful law that You gave, and we thank You that You gave it ultimately with the purpose of grace. You described to us clearly, and even the most clearly in the person of Christ Himself, You described what the standard is and what You're like. And You did it so that we might see our desperate need for You and Your grace. pray that You'd be with us during this meal time. And bless the fellowship. Again, we thank You. We bless Your name. We praise You for all Your mercy and kindness to us. In Jesus' name, Amen. We're dismissed.